coming up on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you are a psychotherapist or any professional, or if you're not, you need to get some training and competence in understanding addictions because it's not just anything. Yes, the medicine can do amazing healing. Yes, this could support your addiction stuff, but then you want to have after this a lot of other kinds of support to continue the work. So the, the sitter or somebody would have to have enough knowledge to know that this isn't an all-inclusive, like whatever, even if it's a boga or something that is seems like directly targeting the receptors for opioids, it doesn't mean that that's going to solve it, right? There needs to be a lot more time with integration and with people who understand addiction, even with a boga. We, we see this issue, like people go to other countries to take a boga. They go to, you know, Canada or Mexico. They do five days or two weeks there, and then they go back home. And their environment is not conducive for them to continue. So they don't have cravings for a while, but as soon as that wears out, the cravings start to return. They have no skills to actually manage the addiction as it starts to come back. So very often people come back home without any support. So I think that's really the thing. If you're going to work with addiction, that you want to understand that this is a marathon, not a sprint. Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture, designed for therapists, healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts, presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. Are you curious about psychedelic medicine for addiction and people in recovery? Well, today's guest, Dr. Charles Flores, has spent 25 years exploring transpersonal psychology and substance abuse disorders. On the show, we discuss how psychedelic medicine can facilitate breakthroughs in addictive patterns. We talk about process addiction and the default mode network, and we do so through the lens of pornography and internet addiction. Dr. Flores cautions against seeing psychedelics as a silver bullet for substance abuse issues and that the integration process must be longer and more skillful. Dr. Flores is a nationally certified psychotherapist and advanced drug and alcohol counselor. He's also a professor of chemical dependency studies at Cal State East Bay. And he is also the new psychedelics and addiction fellow for CIIS Center for Psychedelic Therapies and Research. There are no simple answers in addiction treatment. But over the next hour, Dr. Flores helps us better understand the landscape. All right. Well, welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, Dr. Flores. It's really exciting to have you on today because the idea that psychedelics could be pivotal in addiction treatment is it's a super important technology now. Obviously, there's Bill W. was talking about LSD back at the end of his work with the 12-step program. I think most of the audience will be familiar with ibogaine, which comes from the aboga root bark, which is used for the treatment of opiate addiction. And there are 
studies underway at the moment about smoking secession with psilocybin. So this idea of addiction is really is really top of mind in terms of the power of psychedelic healing and psychedelic therapy. And you, sir, are an addiction specialist and bullish on psychedelics for their efficacy in this realm. And so you are just the perfect person to have this conversation with. So I really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me to, uh, to chat about this. I think it's a really important topic, both since as we're talking about psychedelics and we're talking about addictions, to really sort of explore that and understand it better as we start to move into this psychedelic renaissance, as they say. Now, what is it that first got you especially interested in addiction and recovery? Well, I was born and raised in the South Bronx. So this was in the um, in the 1970s. So just a little context for those that, you know, people don't know. It's like the, the Bronx uh, in the 70s became the, the, the poster child for a ghetto or what a ghetto looks like. It was a shock to people when President Carter came and flew over and saw the abandoned or burnt out buildings in the South Bronx. And he commented, I think it was him who commented, it was like when after Berlin was bombed. And it wasn't always like that. The Bronx was, you know, initially it was farmland and it was extended out to, you know, it was an extension of Manhattan. People were escaping the dumbbell tenements, which were even worse. And then they went to the Bronx. And then what happened in the 70s, there was uh, an exodus out to the suburbs of New Jersey and Westchester and all that. And mostly what you call white flight and a lot of people of color stayed or moved in from various places. And, and so it became this brew of, of a lot of cultures, but you know, generally poor people of color. It's now known as the birthplace of hip hop. It was about a mile away from where I was, uh, where I was brought up. I remember doing break dancing before it was called the break breaking. We didn't really, we were just out doing it. It was just like BMX bikes and mongoose and, you know, dancing and popping, whatever. And that was just, that was just how it was. People had turntables like right on the ground level and they would have had block parties. And that's, that's what I remember. And then Puerto Rico, you know, I'm Puerto Rican. So people playing congas in the park, dominoes. It was just that kind of vibe then. But then you also had, you know, heroin, crack, gangs, that whole so just getting getting a sense of the milieu and you know that that was only one place like that it you know there are so many uh, impoverished places that suffer from the same kind of, of thing so it's like in a way it's rich because it has that and then and at the same time it's really challenging so there i saw a lot of addiction including my father who was like the major one of the major influences for me to come to addiction treatment. Uh, I don't think I walked into it consciously. I wasn't like, oh yeah, I want to be an alcohol counselor because my father was alcoholic. No, that wasn't, it, it sort of, somehow I fell into it. I went into psychology and initially my interest was actually in uh, transpersonal psychology. When I, when I went to Vassar College, I didn't, wasn't that interested in psychology because I thought it was the psychology for bean counters. You know, it's all like just like numbers and Watson kind of behavioral stuff. And I was like, oh man, no, hell no, I don't want to do that. 
But then when I discovered transpersonal psychology with uh, Ken Wilber and Stanislav Grof and Washburn and all these people that were like starting to come out, that's that's what it kind of went, oh, wow, psychology can be spiritual. There's mm. something that, that was important to me. And I, I think re- it's really relevant actually to this discussion when we talk about psychedelics. So that, you know, that's, that's an interest. My first job was at a trauma clinic in Brooklyn. And I found that half the clients who were suffering from trauma, at least half, were also addicted to the pain medications they were taking. And that's, that's how it really started. And I started using, you know, biofeedback and neurobiofeedback with some of these clients. And, but I said, oh, wow, I, I need to get more, learn more, you know, more than what I learned in school about how to treat addictions because I'm seeing folks that remind me of my dad and I don't really know how to treat them. So that was something that I made a point of learning about over the next several years and in, in New York. And eventually, I, I got here to San Francisco and, you know, to California Institute of Integral Studies. And then, you know, many years here in the Bay Area um, in, in, involved in treatment. So it started with something personal, really. I, I was a child of, a, you know, an alcoholic family. And then um, not only that, I had an aunt who was a schizophrenic. And who, at times, she was in Bronx State Hospital, but then she lived with us part of the time as well. And so I got both. I, I think I was getting trained to be a therapist just because I had it in my, my family, these two different aspects. And my, my, actually, my aunt was wonderful in a lot of ways. And she could go on her stuff. And, and that was something that was interesting to me when I studied transpersonal psychology and also in psychedelic experience, how people who have connection they see other things that people don't see and well isn't that very similar to what many uh spiritual teachers yogis and and psychonauts you know what they discuss but i just followed along with her very much like the trainings we have now and i just go oh okay oh so this and connects with this and this and i just followed (laughs) and i was just a kid I didn't know any better. I just kind of was like, oh, well, that kind of makes sense in its own way. <laughs> I don't see it myself, but I can, yeah, you know, and she, she loved me because of that. <laughs> so, And I'm also the yeah. child of an alcoholic too. So I definitely resonate with that. And, and I think that many people who, who grow up in those kind of households end up kind of being drawn towards healing and towards serving people in that way because they've been seeing it so so up close at such a young age, like you with your father and then also with your aunt. So it makes a lot of sense that you were drawn into, um, into caring for people in the way that you do. Um, there is a meme that has gone around about how addiction isn't really addiction. And there's the experiment with the rats and the cocaine, but then when you put the rats in the great playground, then they're not taking the cocaine. It seems like it's probably more complex than it appears in the way it's presented. So I'm curious, as an addiction specialist, what is addiction? Wow, okay, huge question. What is addiction? Right, so yeah, I I too have seen and... I teach at Cal State East Bay. So if the average person out there who doesn't know anything about it, they want to find out. And it's like, oh, so they get their, they go to YouTube and they try to find out about it. You get these kind of like one, you know, one reason, one shot, like, oh, it's all about connection. That's it. Addiction is all about connection. 
Um, it's all about, you know, a lot of people um, challenging the hypothesis of the hijacked brain, for example. They got a lot of people who are like, for whatever reason, they have their own issues or challenges the way things are, but they don't even know what the treatment is. So you're, you're kind of getting the critiques before you even get the actual thing itself. So what, what I tend to tell people is that, you know, with these YouTube videos and all that, sometimes they're wrong, but usually it's true, but partial. It's kind of like Ken Wilber used to say, it's like, that's really the issue. It's not that connection is not part. Of course, connection is a major element of it, right? This is part of, so if we look at the history of addiction treatment, right? Because it wasn't, we, it's a very short history. There isn't a very long one. It's not like it goes back hundreds and thousands of years. It goes back a, a few decades. And we weren't even talking about treatment when Bill W., as you mentioned, was, you know, and AA started. That wasn't really the, it, it, it was, well, one thing he did get, yeah, he understood that connection was important. That's why you had a fellowship, right? That's why you get people's phone numbers. But that wasn't all. Even there, it wasn't the, wasn't the only answer, right? So generally speaking, when we talk about addictions, we're talking about the biopsychosocial um, spiritual model. So and that's Ken Wilber? It's not Ken Wilber. It's actually before Ken Wilber. They've been talking about biopsychosocial oh. spiritual models since like the 70s. But, it, okay. you know, I, I, know anyway, I think of it, I associate it with yeah. him when I think about it. Right. And then there was another guy, Lazarus as well, who had multimodal. He, he put it all together too. So, I mean, in therapy, there were other people talking about this. We get all this information, right? And we're looking at all the aspects of the life. And so there's many different causes, so to speak. Of course, in diagnosis, there is like what, what's looked at is impairment. They're looking at, okay, in any of these areas of your life, how is it negatively or in any way impacting it. Sometimes it's major, like you lose your job, or sometimes it's subtle. You just don't perform well in your job or you don't move in your career, for example. When I talk with clients, it's not just, okay, who your friends are, you, oh, they're all, you're only drinking with your friends, but it's like, who, who are the people you won't hang with because you're, all you're involved with is drinking, right? So anyway, it's a complex thing. It's like this, it's, it's many different dimensions. Connection being one of them, but generally speaking, what we see between the addictions are, I do use the analogy of the hijacked brain because I think it's very useful. It's very useful for counselors, for clients, and therapists to see that where, in a way, there's a part of the brain that gets shut down, you know, the part that really allows you to plan, think forward, you know, sort of look at consequences when you're using a drug and the part that gets amplified is the part that craves, that wants. In fact, that could be, you know, I often say that addiction is really, there. that, you know, there's process addictions and then there's chemical addictions. So there's all the stuff that isn't like, you're not taking a chemical, but you know, you're not, it's not food, it's not drugs, but it's gambling, it's, you know, it, it's sex addiction, it's workaholic, it's whatever it is. And they're all about more. It's like it's the addiction. The addiction is always, I need to get more. And, and as uh, Gabor Mate says, like the hungry ghost, you're never fed. You just, you just get devouring more of what doesn't really give you what you want. That's why I, I distinguish between 
abstinence, just stopping using a drug. And then in AA, they talk about the dry drunk, right? So they stopped, but they're not running, really running a program. They're not doing any treatment. They're not doing anything like that. So there's like abstinence and recovery. And often I might put the capital R on the recovery because the recovery really extends not just about not using a drug. It's about what you gain from that, which is yourself. You start to claim some of who you are. You're like who you are in a deep way, perhaps, as you start to go on this journey, you know, it's an in, in one way of looking at it, like the integral yoga of Sri Aurobindo, for example, which I, I connect with, it's like the soul has to come forward in a life in order for you to really live. So it's like there is a part of us that needs to, and in a way, you're claiming your soul. Your soul is coming back to you. You're no longer in the chains of addiction, but you're finding the freedom. And the freedom is really not to hopefully find another addiction to get locked into. Then you just go from one chain to another. So it's like, okay, now I'm not using alcohol, but now I'm a workaholic, right? So you could go one to the next. And that's often what happens with people who try to have abstinence is that they end up smoking, they end up drinking lots of coffee and Red Bulls and go to any AA, NA room, you'll see a crowd of people outside smoking, right? So it's like, okay, maybe relatively that's caffeine is a lot better than the heroin, but Ultimately, the spiritual thing is not solved. And that is the, you know, the, 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 what's missing. We don't connect with what our souls really want us to do in this world and in this life. And unlike anything else, really, I mean, meditation over time, for sure, psychedelics has the potential for us to connect with that, with things like life purpose. And so that's what's exciting about it. So I'd like to focus on, to start, I'd like to focus on these kind of process addictions, like gambling, workaholism. And the one that I'd like to zero in on as an example is one that I think is enormously important and kind of not really talked about as as much as it needs to be, particularly during this COVID time, which is addiction to pornography. Addiction to pornography is an interesting one in terms of psychedelic healing because it really is an example of what you're talking about. It's a certain kind of process addiction that that really disconnects people from real connection and, as you're saying, their life's purpose. And so I think that might be a good lens to look at these kind of process addictions through psychedelics. So, yeah, I... My practice, uh, Vital Puma Integral Recovery, I, I do work with all different kinds of addiction, including porn, you know, actually internet addiction itself, mm. you know, Center for Humane Technology. I'm a big fan of that organization because this is what we're dealing with. I think the biggest addiction that we're actually facing right now is not heroin and it's not fentanyl, even though that kills you. What's it's a lot of times the one that lasts the longest. It's the, it's the digital revolution. It's this. Mm. It's, the, it's the medium we're using. It's the clicks. It's the likes. It's all that and training young people to do that. So that, that's a real thing. And certainly digital sex and all that, that's, that's been up since you cannot actually go out and, and get your needs done in an intimate way, especially if you're single. So that's a real, it's a real problem. And trying to connect this up with with psychedelics, I think that this is part of the larger discussion 
that hasn't been researched yet. We're just getting to the point where, and it's wonderful. I was so excited that Johns Hopkins did the uh, doing the studies on, on nicotine addiction, and there are other working on alcohol, all that with psilocybin. Right now, Iboga has had this kind of uh, a little bit of a challenge, let's just say, because people worry about the cardiac issues around it. So it's still very much underground. And then they're looking to create a better Iboga that somehow is going to shorten up the experience and also make it safer. And I mean, we're all for it being safer and, and, and it is an endangered sort of plant. So it's not, it's not easy to work with, you know, Iboga in that way. But I, I think this dealing with the process addiction, these other things that you're talking about are, that's a whole nother level of kind of intentionality. Because here's the thing, our sexuality is not a problem. Having sexuality is not a problem. So first we start off with the puritanical thing. It's like, well, you know, it's like, no, you have to stuff your, your sexuality, label it, you have to control it libidinal, it's sinful, whatever it might. And in, in the United States, that's still an, an issue for many in many places in the country. It's just that alone. And then when you free up from it, then it's like, oh, it's debauchery, right? It's like you go the other direction, not having a natural relationship with sexuality to begin with. I think that's that's even before we get into any sort of addictive stuff. It's like we're not having a real naturalized relationship with people and their sexuality and their bodies. It's it's already fetishized and sort of put out as an object, women especially put out as objects. So we don't have uh, a healthy relationship with sexuality to begin with in the United States. So then plug in something as powerful as, they used to call it cyber sex or whatever, you know, this porn addiction, which is, I don't know, some huge amount of the internet, right? apparently porn. Talk about hijacking the brain. <clears throat> yeah, high-speed internet pornography has a unique way of pulling the levers of, of dopamine. And what I, had, what I had learned is that when you have a sexual experience, it releases a cornucopia of yummy neurotransmitters like oxytocin right. with connection. Right. Porn releases dopamine. You just get a you get a pop and drop. You get a spike and then and then it goes down. I, I think that what you're getting at here, which I think is enormously important, is that psychedelics don't just heal a specific symptom. It's not just a mechanical like I have this problem. It seems that psychedelics really reveal a lot of different pieces that are associated with a problem, and then the integration allows you to start to change them in your life. Would you say that that's a, a good way of thinking about psychedelics and addiction? Yeah, and it, well, and it, like I said, it's a comp. It depends on the psychedelic, mm. right? It depends on really they they do different things. They connect to different, and how you connect with the psychedelic, right? So then, I'll give an example. Like if you know you go to the jungle and you you take ayahuasca in Peru or some, or Brazil, whatever they, you do a diet and they tell you no sexual activity for that period. While you're doing that diet, you're conserving that energy. And if you do decide to partake in a sex, that's not a good idea. I'll just say it makes the journey much more challenging. And they, they, you know, some shamans have called her a jealous mistress, right? So literally like your, your libidinal, drive is they she, she at, at the often it's described as a she wants that 
to be engaged in the psychedelic experience. You're not in there before having cyber sex before you do a ceremony. <laughs> you just don't do that. So anyway, there, there, in some medicines, there's an intimate connection. Some even enhance sexual desire. But here's the thing. This is the way I, I, I would look at it. You know, it's not like you take the medicines and then, oh, I'll, I'll stop having doing any porn. It doesn't necessarily work like that. It comes through various insights. There could be trauma that could be tied up or bound in that it'll try to unknot. Also, there's a way in which different medicines in some ways naturalize you to your body. Mm, so when we explain have, that. So it, it, it's sort of like if you're looking at a screen and staring at a screen and, and, and you're seeing an image, it's, it's a bunch of pixels. You're not actually even seeing anything. Like what we're seeing right now is, is a facsimile. It's like we're not in the same room. We're not in none of this is real, like in 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 a certain sense. So when you're watching porn online, it, it's very much that it's pre-recorded. It's whatever. It, it's you know, and it's mass-produced. And when you're in the space of a psychedelic, many times if you're focusing on that, and it's about intention. You learn what it is to be in your body and connect with what is present and here and now. So you can be very, especially like something like uh, MDMA will certainly give you that, where it's like, okay, it's like you're here. Or even cannabis, you know, at high doses for some people can have that effect, where like there's a sense of touch, a connection, and that's more what is in our nature. We have a sexuality and there's nothing wrong with that. We're a part of nature. Sexuality is a part of us. It's just that how we have, we funnel it in certain ways because there's some certain ways that we feel that we need to repress it. And what happens by taking the default mode network offline a little bit to great degrees, we start to see how we're repressing ourselves and have potential for other avenues of sexual expression in this particular case, aside from an addictive uh, viewing of a screen. So... Uh, it's a, sort of indirect. I know you've cautioned me against simple answers, but the default mode network seems to be the culprit with a lot of like behavioral type addictions. For example, I'm thinking of something like anorexia. The default mode network is the part of your brain that habituates to think of yourself, and when you're when you're resting, that's the activity. Would you say that the default mode network is is a core culprit in terms of addiction? I think in one way you could say the default mode network, at least as I understand it, is a network of many different kinds of patterns that are locked in. And some of which we label or identify as, quote, an addiction when it's not serving us well. Right? So we have lots of patterns and the patterns could be a substance or a thing, and then we say that's an addiction. It could be tweaks or twitches or things that we do that are like what we've developed over a lifetime, defenses that we've developed psychologically over a lifetime. So depending on how much uh, of a dose that you're taking of the psychedelic, you could literally have a moment where you're freed from all of that. There is a reason why we have this default mode network. We don't want to have to, it's like, you don't want to go in your car and have to learn how to drive every day, right? You, you, you need to be able to step in, oh, what, like, what do I do? You don't want to have to think about it. So it, it's all the subroutines that are just so automatic 
for us to have to live in a consensual social reality that we have. So it's like, okay, I got to wake up, I got to brush my teeth and all that. There's nothing wrong with that. It, the thing is that you, there's a price you pay for having so many of those routines. And that's why it's so important for us to break open uh, those routines. And some of those are addictive. So it's like, I think the addictive ones are the ones we identify in a certain way that are part of the default mode. So not everything is called an addiction just because it's something, it's like brushing our teeth is a good thing or eating or whatever it is. Like there's lots of things that we do that we don't want to have to relearn every, every time we do it. But that, yes. So I think as a constellation, oh, and traumas, of course. So anything that we get locked into there, I think that, that you know, it gets kind of embedded in there. So it allows you to sort of open it up and make it more porous, gives you some freedom to make some changes. And I, I'll, I'll say this, of one, of the, one of the traditions that was really good at, this is just me speaking about it, is um, I, I think Buddhist psychology particularly Tibetan Buddhist psychology, when they talk about samskaras and all that, they're like talking about breaking up consensual reality in the like in this this sort of solid concrete way that we look at things, that to be to be free or to be liberated is to understand the spaciousness that actually exists. Yes, we make these agreements that this is how it is, but it's not actually that. And I think they are addressing in their own way a default mode network. So interesting. You mentioned trauma, and I think that trauma is definitely at play with many addictive experiences. When I went and did Iboga, I talked to the, the Bwiti shamans about addiction. And what I was told is that in their belief, essentially, that addiction isn't real, it's all trauma. And they see a lot of people who are addicted to opiates because they go to Gabon to do Iboga to try to try to shed that addiction. But essentially that that an addiction is just a compensatory pattern for a deep trauma. And that what Iboga does is that it goes to the root of what that trauma is and reveals it to you so that you can work with it at its root. And then the um, downstream effects of that are that the that the addiction kind of falls away. Right. And again, I, I, I'm d- dangerously close to an oversimplified <laughs> narrative here. But would right. you say that that in terms of the work that you've done with addiction, that if you can get to the root of trauma, that then the addiction will, in a sense, kind of shed away? Or is there is it always some kind of combination of like behavior repatterning in an intentional way that goes along with that realization? Yeah, I, I I would say people who say that if you remove the trauma, you remove the addiction, like some, in some simplistic way. No, it doesn't necessarily happen that way because you can remove the, there could have been an initial thing that got you to use the substance. I've got clients who have had traumatic things happen and they say they started to use the substance. And then we've done not psychedelics but like emdr or something and then the the trauma is by and large relieved but they're still left with an addiction and there's still something that is a payoff that they get from it so there's something that they like about it there's something that they they like the way they feel they like the way they and so it so it it can sometimes initiate it but here's here's a kind of a little different way of look at it when i think of and i was just talking with you know the folks at you know chakruna about this was really that you know, we're looking at a difference between the way Western civilization looks at things. We think we see things as objects out there. And then there's us here. 
I think for therefore I am, and this is me, and then there's you're out there, right? And but traditional, you know, Aboriginal peoples really see themselves as embedded in a network of nature, and we are part of nature. We're not separate from it. We're not. We don't see ourselves as all oh, this. We're we're humans or we're man, and so we're we're different. We're above and we're caretaking. That whole paradigm doesn't make any sense. I think that many of those traditions that would see what we're doing is traumatic. The mm. fact that we've made a separation from ourselves from nature that we cannot have connection with spirits of the trees or the mountains or whatever it might be, like we don't have a connection to that. We lost that. We lost that from our pagan roots in Europe with Christianity going back a long time. So that is a trauma already in a fundamental way, which, and then all the others layer on top of those. It's like it gets worse and worse. And it's almost like we're using the, these plant medicines, as they call them, to bring us back to where we were. Like we got ourselves in this hole and now we're like trying to fish our, ways out, our way out. And then you go to the jungle and you're like, oh, my God, that tree is talking to me or whatever it is. And it's like and you're not quote tripping. This is a part of something that people have experienced for a long, long, long time. You know, and you could talk to the person next to you and they're seeing the same thing. <laughs> you know, you're in the same reality. Did you just see that? Yes, I did. Oh, OK. And you're not. By the way, I'm not talking to you. My mouth's not moving because we have a psychic experience. This becomes like. A thing. It's like a reality. It's not just imaginal. It's not just superstition. So then we have to re, you know, recalibrate about how we we see. So for them, many times that's the first trauma. The first trauma is really the separation. And how do we reconnect in a new way? Because we can't go back to the way we were exactly, but we do need to find a new way to connect with nature, to connect with it's not it's not just the plants and the animals, but it's also entire worlds, discarnate beings, the non-dual, you know, that a lot of people talk about, all these different realms that um, exist that are outside of the norm, you know, which are part of the field of transpersonal psychology and and real psychology. Yeah, and I think being able to touch that can imbue one with a different sense of hope and a different sense of meaning. And I, I believe from the studies around occasioning mystical experiences that those people who experienced what they called a mystical experience had better therapeutic outcomes than those who had an experience that was psychedelic, but they themselves did not consider it to be mystical. And that psychedelics typically do occasion these mystical experiences. They don't always, but those who had what is deemed a mystical experience had the lasting therapeutic effect. And I think that that's in part because it's so cumulative. You know, when you when there's a feeling of revelation and oneness and truth, that kind of sets in motion a lot of the behaviors that needed to happen to change the addiction, to change the lifestyle, to ultimately change one's communities, you know, and 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 hopefully change the world. Yeah, yeah. But there's but there's also an issue here with psychedelics themselves being used addictively. And what I'm thinking mm. of is especially here is ketamine. Now I know when you take LSD, you can't just keep taking LSD. And but there are people who get compulsively into ayahuasca or compulsively into some of these medicines. With ketamine, I've heard of of ketamine having actually some physiological addictive 
components to it that people actually can can go deep into a sort of like never ending K hole of intravenous um, addictive use. What about psychedelics themselves becoming parts of people's addictions? Okay, so like you mentioned, you 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 mentioned ketamine in particular. I think it depends. Right, so you have many different kinds of of medicines that are you. So ketamine, as far as we know, there's no natural correlate to ketamine. Doesn't mean we won't discover something in the jungle one day, maybe. But it, it, right now, we we don't see anything. It was just created in a lab, and uh, it takes you out of your body. And it does have definitely has addiction addictive potential. It's tricky with ketamine. Ketamine, in a way, is in certain respects, it's safe. You know, that's part of why how it was invented. It was meant to be used in the battlefield so that, you know, you can give yourself your, your buddy ketamine for pain relief without being a medic yourself, you know? So it has like certain like attributes that make it really powerful and, and, and good in that way. But yes, I, I do. And I've had clients and I have clients who are been are addicted to ketamine and they would not be candidates for getting any sort of ketamine treatment for sure. On the other side of it, though, I think in the United States, at least in my research as a fellow for the Center for Psychedelic um, uh, Treatments and Research, I think that we've kind of spun too much in the cautious uh, category about ketamine with addictions because there is uh, some literature out there that show that it is effective for certain kinds of addictions like alcohol mm. and heroin. So it, it, it's... There are a couple of places in the United States that I believe are using it for that purpose, which you know I, I want to look into further. So, but but definitely uh, with ketamine, you have to do a lot of screening for sure. There, it's definitely you know it's like you, you don't want to have somebody who's already abused it to or for you know using that for therapeutic means. Now, the other other uh, substances, it's I think that with anything can become an addiction. This mm-hmm. is where we cannot be simply you know, like. Sometimes people are very simplistic, like they did with cannabis. They were like, cannabis, all good. That's not all bad, so it's all good. And, you know, it's, life is complicated, right? So it's like, it's a, generally speaking, psychedelics are, as a class, not very addictive at all. You know, just if you look at people are, are uh, using it and they're not developing physical dependencies on it and that sort of thing. However, I've had clients come to come to me who have had issues with substances, who are members of of even churches, Native American churches, who use it very regularly, and they having a lot of issues. And part of it's because their egos have sort of like opened up, and they're not put together well. It's hard to describe. Mm-hmm. It's like they never had the integration. They never they they live in the ceremony. They live in that. It's like, oh, uh, uh, you know, yeah, next ceremony and all that. And they love that space, but they never like kind of put themselves back together. And so I've actually worked with uh, a few clients in, in that space. I think mm-hmm. it's, an, it's important work that we need to consider that some people can, you know, addictively go to ceremonies, whether it's underground or, you know, in other countries and, and they can, they can find, you know, develop an addiction to that, which is not healthy. So it is, and in the native understanding, there's always a dark side to the medicines as well. They're not all light and good. Mostly, 
they, you know, if they're used well with respect and you create the correct, correct container and protections, usually it's fine, but there can be a, a dark shadow side to that medicine. So, and a perfect example is tobacco, right? Tobacco, we think of cigarettes and all that. It's considered one of the most powerful plant medicines known. It's like, it, and its effects, when you do work with it in a ceremonial way or immediate, they're really powerful, right? And oh, look at the addictive potential uh, it has. It's the biggest killer in the United States. Cigarette smoke, it's like 400,000 Americans die every year due to complications um, of smoking. So it's, it's more than all the other addictions combined as far as the death toll. When you're talking about this reverence, and I think it's so important here, that there are traditions that have built protections and reverence and ceremony. And some of these things may seem supernatural or we don't understand them, but actually they even even if you don't kind of buy into the metaphysical protections, it makes a lot of sense to have a kind of reverence. For example, with ayahuasca, you do you do this diet before you go into the ceremony, and that cleanses you. And it doesn't necessarily just cleanse your body; it 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 gets you out of some of your traditional habits. It kind of puts you in a state where you're actually really open to receive this experience. And my experience with ayahuasca is that the harder you fight against it, the harder your ride's going to be. Right, and you know the more difficult it'll be, the more you know the more you're you're not really ready to be present with it and have that experience. And so the diet itself is part of the protection, the way that the ceremony is held. And so I think that as we're looking at bringing psychedelic medicines into the mainstream, particularly something like, say, ketamine, we need to be really attentive to set and setting, not just for the efficacy of the actual trip itself, but as a kind of prophylactic for potential complications. Um, I think it's something that we need to be really careful about. Yeah, absolutely. Something with that much power, it has the potential to really completely change a life. So even if you're not, like you say, you don't buy into the metaphysics or whatever it is, you know, understand that number one, you had millions of people over hundreds, if not thousands of years, you know, sort of, it, there's a pattern. That was, and it, it created a, a, a context for all these, so many thousands of people to take these medicines safely. There was no crackdown. There was no war on drugs or any of that previous to what we what happened in, in, in this country, right? So it's like, you know, if you went back uh, 500 years, I'm like, no, no more, you know, psychedelics for you, no more plant medicine. It did, didn't happen. It was really when Europeans came that, there was a there was a you know crackdown on these medicines because they were scary because they were devils you know medicines or whatever. So I, I think that you know having that sacred relationship to it, even if you don't buy into you know certain things, it's like you you notice there's a lot of care that's taken. A lot of times there is a an altar that's, that that's and, and the idea is to put you in a sense not a state of entitlement not a state of power, domination, control, colonization. It's to step back into humility. So you condition yourself a little bit to open up to the experience. And of course, you know, we know about abuses and that sort of thing. And it's not to completely, you know, 
do whatever the shaman tells you if it's something that is, you know, dangerous for you. But if we're talking about experiences that you have and you're, you're going to have an encounter with the medicine that you're, that you fully allow yourself to go into it with a degree of humility and, and, and reverence for the possibility that, you know, this could be a life changing uh, event every time you don't know. Sometimes it'll change some small part and sometimes it can change something huge. So we're kind of coming towards the end of our hour here together. And one of the things that I think would be really helpful for the aspiring psychedelic practitioner who is listening is what would you say to a practitioner who is wanting to use psychedelics with someone who is one of their, the main things they're working with is an addiction of some kind? Wow. So are you talking about people who are like sitters, like a kind of the underground and doing working with a boga? Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, an underground practitioners or possibly even, you know, doctors who are prescribing ketamine, maybe, you know, retreat leaders. If someone is coming in and they're saying, hey, you know, I'm trying to, I've got this alcoholism, I, I've heard that this could maybe help, you know, what what's what are some important things for that practitioner to really be aware of when when working with with clients of, of those populations? I, I think that whether or not if if you are a psychotherapist or any professional or if you're not, that you st- you need to get some training and some competence in understanding addictions. Because it's not just anything. Yes, the medicine can do amazing healing. Part of the challenge is that many times people who come in, it's like, oh, well, I can do, it's like some therapist, you know, they, they put an entire list. I'll do grief, I'll do anxiety and depression and this and that and the other. It's like, well, we're not all good at all those things, right? Sometimes we need to get really clear about what we're skilled at. And so many times, you know, it's, it's not just the medicine is magic. And so I'll, I can, I'll take all comers. It, it's like, okay, yes, this could support your addiction stuff, but then you want to have after this a lot of other kinds of support to continue the work and, and to have those. So, so the, the sitter or somebody would have to have enough knowledge to know that this isn't not an all inclusive, like whatever, even if it's a boga or something that is seems like directly targeting the receptors for opioids, it doesn't mean that that's going to solve it, right? There needs to be a lot more time with integration and with people who understand addiction. Even with a boga, we, we see this issue, like people go to other countries to take a boga. They go to, you know, Canada or Mexico. They do five days or two weeks there, and then they go back home. And their environment is not conducive for them to continue. So they don't have cravings for a while, but as soon as that wears out, the cravings start to return. They have no skills to actually manage the addiction as it starts to come back. So very often people come back home without any support. So I think that's really the thing. If you're going to work with addiction, that you want to understand that this is a marathon, not a sprint. It's not like somebody is just going to take the, have this or even two or three ceremonies or whatever experiences and they're going to stop having an addiction. You want to have a team of skilled people and 
preferably even like the environment they come back to is got to be different. They came in and they were using alcohol and drugs, whatever. Are you sending them right back to that? Do they know anything else? You know, they go, they go to this foreign country and they come back to the States and they're back in where they were. There's no change. You know, so I, I think that's really it. It's, it's really even a, a larger premium on integration. But integration here is really some, it's not necessarily all mystical work and, you know, interesting and, well, man, mind expanding. Some of it's got to be nuts and bolts, like, you know, how you restructure your day. What do you do with yourself in your free time? What do you do? You know, all those things. Who are you spending time with? Who are your friends, et cetera, et cetera. It just goes on and on. So I think that's really my advice. It's really looking at integration as being the more about the solution than just the just having the experience. And I think for people who are in recovery, there's an extra challenge here with the integration piece, which is, and I interviewed a fellow named Kevin Franciotti, who's created an organization for, for people in the 12-step program who are using psychedelics for healing. And what Kevin told me is that it's, it's difficult often if you're in recovery and you use a psychedelic for healing, that, that that can be stigmatized within certain recovery spaces. So you, can, you don't want to be back in an environment where you're using, but you might not necessarily be welcome in a recovery environment either. And so I think that having more sophisticated harm reduction communities, or pardon me, integration and harm reduction, but I was meaning integration, more sophisticated integration communities that really are well-versed in the needs of people in recovery is going to be a really valuable thing. And you know, if, if we're going to be putting all of these veterans through MDMA therapy, a lot of these men and women who have been suffering for a really long time with post-traumatic stress disorder, many of them have addictions as well. So it seems like that integration piece is so important. And I think some of the people who are interested in in being sort of integration coaches, I, I think that getting really well-versed in understanding how to support people in recovery would be enormously helpful. There's a real need for that. So with that in mind, what sort of resources would you direct someone to... I mean, I don't know if there are particular credentials that might be helpful for someone to get in this in this arena. How would how can someone really tighten up their their ability to work with populations who are suffering from addiction? So yeah, I thank you. I, I think that you're right in that part of the challenge is really educating. It, it's it's about the what's available now isn't exactly ideal for people who are doing this work. So at one level, we we know that. If people have a mystical experience that something like what Bell W had with Belladonna before he started talking about LSD and connected with higher power at some level, that if they're prepped, they could actually use AA or NA and just not necessarily talk about the experience itself and make that, but it's like that they could use the steps because they connected in a very, very direct way or personal way with higher power. So Right now, what's most prevalent in many parts of the country are 12-step meetings. In cities where, you know, if you're in the Bay Area, New York, whatever, you have more options, right? Potentially, you know, uh, options where they would be more open to these kinds of experiences or there are like psychedelic societies that have support groups 
for people who are having these experiences and all that. And so right now, what we could do is have a patchwork of different kinds of people who are supportive. One thing I'm I'm big I'm I'm a board member of CCAP. So in California, one of the big organizations that credentials substance use providers. And uh, so if you have a CADC or they're they're called different things in different states, people who are actually trained to work with substance use. What I'm doing now at Cal State is teaching these future counselors in their in our education about psychedelics and so that they understand that if people are having these experiences, that they could be used in a positive way for their recovery, that it isn't just, oh, a drug is a drug, and there's no difference between them. Once they see all the research and they see everything behind it, they go, oh, uh, clearly this is not the same thing. We're not talking about, you know, we're not talking about methamphetamines or something like that. We're talking about these other substances, and they actually could support somebody in recovery. So, um, but that's going to take a while. And I think more of us are going to have to come out and, and, and speak about this. And also really a, a deeper understanding of harm reduction, which is also mm. not a simple thing, right? There's a spectrum of harm reduction and it's very specific to sometimes the client. So that we understand that. And I think that we're, we're coming along, but we still have a long way to go. I think that there are many people that don't, the first question that you asked, which was so important, it's like, well, could there be addiction around psychedelics, right? It's like, even that, people are like, huh, really? And it's like, absolutely. We need to be talking about this, asking these questions, and then create a, you know, we haven't even built yet the supportive network of providers who will be taking psilocybin for nicotine or alcohol or whatever it is in the future. Like that's this is a whole new thing, a new field, and and you become an integration therapist, believe it or not. You know, in that process, it's quite different than the traditional thing that we've been doing for a long time. And you're working with CIIS, correct? So I'm a fellow with I'm the the Psychedelics and Addictions Fellow. So basically, oh, it, it's it's the wonderful it's, it, title. Yeah, and it's a it's a foray into this because this is something like well now prohibition is coming down and what does that mean? Mm. Too many people have I I I I believe say prohibition it, it's like it's it's an ill in itself mass incarceration all of this like totally I'm like I'm totally on board with that it's like huge part of why I'm interested in doing this for people of color for example. That's a huge thing. And it, it isn't like, okay, well, it's legal. Now it's good. You just use as much as you want. <laughs> you know, that it's somehow like means that you get a free open pass, you know, and, and many times, you know, I'll, with students, I'll just tell them, I say, well, what about opiates? Opiates are legal. You know, you can get, in fact, most of them, people are getting addicted to ones are legal. They're a prescription, right? So it's not about legality in and of itself. We have to look at other things. So it's like this legality gets sort of mixed in there. And then we have the harm reduction part. And there's harm reduction for public policy and for health. And then there's harm reductions for individuals and for groups. You know, And so we have to get more granular about this and more sophisticated. Right now, I feel a lot of times I, I walk into discussions about addictions and people are you know, in one side or one camp or another camp. 
And it, it, to me, none of those really paint the whole picture because it's so, so much larger than that. And throw in psychedelics into this and it even makes it even more complicated, right? So, so we're, you know, we're, we're just taking that foray. And I think all my years working with addictions re- really makes me kind of uniquely qualified for doing the work with the psychedelic renaissance as it starts to come in so that we don't go, oh, well, psilocybin is legal. So therefore, you know, just a free for all. It's like, no, 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 have reverence for it. And, you know, and we know that once something is legalized, that there are all kinds of unforeseen effects that we don't, we don't know yet because we've never done it before. We learn about it sometimes a couple of years or several years later, the impacts of things. So it, it's, it's like we are very much, I, I think, doing it with humility and caution at the same time, some excitement, because I think that there is massive uh, potential here for healing addictions and trauma. Mm. Well, I'm so glad that we've got you on board in this psychedelic renaissance and really grateful that we've had a chance to talk about all of these different aspects of psychedelics as they relate to addictions. Because I really, I feel that that there are many people who, who see these silver bullet cure-alls, well, you know, we just need to make psychedelics legal and it's just going to change everything and everything's going to be good. And what can't be solved with an ayahuasca experience because it's so profound and sacred. And this kind of psychedelic exceptionalism is, it's it's a tricky beast because if, as you've pointed out quite wisely, there are dark sides. There are tricksters in these medicines. Part of what they do is they are subversive in their way. You know, they subvert things, they they change things, they surprise things, and um, you can develop, I believe, an ontological addiction to the experience of revelation, where you're like, I got to go and I got to do a ceremony again, and and not even a specific drug. Like I got to do vipassana and I got to do a ceremony, and I and and that can actually be a distraction from the healing that you really need. And I think that what you've said this entire conversation is essentially slow down is complex. Slow down is complex. Like it's not just that thing. Yeah, there's that thing, but there's also this thing. And and I just think that that's a really wise, a really broad perspective that I think many people will be really get a lot of benefit out, out of bringing into all of the optimism that we have in this moment in the psychedelic renaissance. Yeah, I, I think that you know it's like. Everything that we've and I've been, you know, participating in many of the conferences that are out there where they're really starting to engage this. You have venture capitalists and all kinds of you know, coming in and it's like, what are we going to do? And and, you know, it's it's like this is the time. This is the time to really start to think about this and see about laying the rails in a certain way so that we can this can go very well for us. You know, this can you know, this can be a a very good thing, but we have to plan. We have to think about it. We have to look at, for example, in my field of, uh, you know, addiction, addiction medicine, addiction treatment, I don't think people are really seeing what's happening. I mean, it's happening. There's the psychedelics. They're going to, a couple of years, that's going to open up. That's going to change that field drastically and i don't think they really see that coming it's it's it, right now it's very much the traditional thing but i think in a, in a few years we're going to 
you know, and I, that, you know, it's going to become clear that people are already having awakenings. They go to an ayahuasca church and I, I, somebody came up to me and said, Oh, you're an addiction special. I, I, I haven't used any drugs in eight months and I did ceremonies in this church, you know? Uh, well, okay. And it's like, who do you tell that to now? Mm-hmm. If you go to a counselor now, do they get that? Do they understand mm-hmm. that? Well, they came through 12 step and they don't see how that could be possible. You know, so this is a, this is a big thing that's coming down the line. And when we start to think about it well in advance and I plan to write about it and talk more about it, hopefully we'll be in a better position. Well, and, and on that note of writing about it and talking more about it, how can our listeners connect with you, support your work, follow what you're doing? What's the best way for folks to, to be tracking what you're, what you're giving to this movement? Well, uh, so I have my website. It's uh, vitalpuma.com, vital, B-A-T-L-P-U-M-A. And you'll see on the website why it's Vital Puma. It, you know, it actually it's a, a, goes back to... Peruvian cosmology, the puma, mm. and the symbolism of the puma. And so if you connect with that and you see what on the website what it means that, you know, and I talk there about what I call integral recovery, mm. which there's a few of us that are doing this particular kind of work where it exactly what I was talking about, these many, this very kind of complex, these different elements of biopsychosocial, spiritual, all that, but also done in uh, a kind of more integral way using Wilbur's model, but then also other kind of other kinds of models for that. And I use the the phrase uh, "wake up, grow up, uh, clean up, and show up," which just mm-hmm. comes right out of Ken Wilbur's work because it really applies here. And uh, my email where I can be reached is Dr. Charles I Flores at yahoo.com. Dr. Charles I F L O R E S at yahoo.com. Well, Dr. Flores, thank you so much for being on the program today and sharing your wisdom and putting yet another concern in my brain about the psychedelic renaissance. (laughs) No, it's good. No, it's good. Part of my job is to be tracking these things. And I was like, ah, you know, I was really looking forward to talking to you today because I I could tell that there was a blind spot here for me. And uh, yeah, you've brought things into a little more um, clarity for me. Certainly, I'm I'm sure for our listeners as well. So thank you for taking the time and sharing and and keep doing that good work and and report back to us. Write write us a book or something so we know what to do and how to take care of people. Yeah, there are a couple of things that I'll be hoping to publish soon. So yeah, I'm hoping to write quite a bit about this over the next uh, couple of years. So looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, thank, thank you, so, you much. so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to myhealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.